Good morning, Church of the Valley. Let's praise God that we don't have to stand while I preach this passage. Amen? Amen. It's nice to be together this morning as we have the opportunity to open God's word and allow us, allow God truly to open our mind and transform our life by teaching us more about him and the gospel of grace. Today we study parts of two different chapters of the Bible in which we just heard Brittany read. And if my memory serves me correctly, we've never really cut into two different chapters as we've taught. Maybe we have, but probably not in this letter. When these letters were written, they did not have chapters and verses attached to them. I I assume most of us know that, perhaps maybe some of us don't. And the verses and chapters, they were added in many years later to make finding what was written significantly easier. Now I share that just to make plain that we can break in the middle of a verse, in the middle of a passage or a chapter, however we'd like to do it, because the way it is broken up into chapters and verses is not God-breathed or ordained or expected. And today, we tackle Paul being brought before King Agrippa to share his case, or really his testimony, of why he knows that Jesus is alive. Now, King Agrippa, for whatever reason, has always reminded me of this wonderful character. Can you show that, Robin? Yes. Now... That's King Hippo, and I do not know that if King Agrippa looks like this, but I also don't know that he doesn't look like this, so there you go. And quick note, if you know who this character is, your childhood was awesome. It's from Mike Tyson's Punch-Out, for those of you who don't know. It's a video game. Never mind, Nintendo. Okay, so now that you have this visual of King Agrippa... (laughs) Let's dive into where we left off, where Paul has been brought before this king to testify to what he knows to be true, that Jesus is alive. Verse 23, here's what it says. The next day, Agrippa and Bernice came with great pomp (laughs) and entered the audience room with the high-ranking military officers and prominent men of the city at the command of Festus. Paul was brought in. Festus, as essentially a professional courtesy, brought Paul before King Agrippa as King Agrippa and Bernice were fascinated by Paul and the reputation that was preceding him. But who were King Agrippa and Bernice? (laughs) Oh man, let me spill the tea for all of you because this is scandalous. Here's King Agrippa. King Agrippa was Herod Agrippa II. He was son of Herod, who killed James, the half-brother of Jesus, and imprisoned Peter. He was the last of the Herods who play a prominent role in New Testament history. His great-uncle was Herod Antipas, who was the Herod of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, while his great-grandfather was Herod the Great, who ruled at the time Jesus was born, though not the ruler of Judea. Agrippa was well-versed in Jewish affairs. Now, Bernice, not Agrippa's wife, but his consort and sister, oh, their sister was also Drusilla, who was married to the former governor, Felix. Their incestuous relationship was the talk of Rome, where Agrippa grew up. Bernice, for a while, became the mistress of another emperor, and then of that emperor's son, Titus, but also returned to his brother. So let me just tell you, Their family reunions were awkward, all right? And that's all I'm going to say about that. Verse 24, Festus said, King Agrippa and all who are present with us, you see this man. The whole Jewish community has petitioned me about him in Jerusalem and here in Caesarea, shouting that he ought not to live any longer. 
Portius Festus, who succeeded Governor Felix, seems to exaggerate a bit of the situation. The whole Jewish community has petitioned me about this man, he says. Bro, it wasn't the entire community, but it was a mob of Jewish detractors who hated what Paul stood for. Even though, to be honest, the text implies that they don't actually know what he stands for, as Paul will point out in his defense. But again, this mob wants Paul dead. And for what? Well, other than trying to get Paul sent back to Jerusalem so the mob can become the judge, jury, and executioner has not really brought any accusations against Paul with any proof whatsoever. Verse 25. I found he had done nothing deserving of death, but because he made his appeal to the emperor, I decided to send him on to Rome. But I have nothing definite to write, or, uh, yeah, to write to his majesty about him. Therefore, I have brought him before all of you, especially before you, King Agrippa, so that as a result of this investigation, I may have something to write. Verse 27. For I think it's unreasonable to send a prisoner on to Rome without specifying the charges against him. Now... I want us to think, have we ever actually experienced something like this ourselves? Maybe not where someone you knew was, being, was threatening to have you put to death, but I can empathize with Festus here as he isn't exactly sure what it is that he's supposed to tell the emperor about Paul regarding what Paul may have done. Now, this is a religious issue. Or perhaps the way that he might have seen this, or the Roman authorities might have seen this, is that this was a family matter. And Festus doesn't speak this family. Church, I don't know if you know this. Like, I'm just going to be real. And like, if you came here, maybe this is your first or second time. Like, I, you need to know this. We have issues in the church. Now, I'm not going to draw them out. I'm not going to tell you about them. There is drama among people in the community. And to be honest, I'm not really thinking of anything specific. I just know that that's true in the church of the living God. And drama, while people are involved and Jesus has yet to take us home, will continue to happen. But here's the thing about drama. You save it for your mama. No, wait. What I mean is that like trials, it's going to happen. Where people are, disagreements and assumptions and issues will abound. But God is in the business of reconciliation. And I don't know if you know this, but he is way, way, way more patient than we are, right? Okay, some of you can talk back. That's good. So much so that I would contend for some of us, God allows an issue to happen. And unless we learn how to walk through this issue, it just seems to keep happening to us until by God's grace, we learn to work through said issue. But in this circumstance with Paul, this is like you having a disagreement with someone in the church over theology and them calling the police because they think you ought to be arrested for not agreeing with them. That's what this is like. It's stupid, I know. But that is what is happening here, so much so that they want Paul not just arrested, but dead. People are sinful. And before any of us go, yeah, but we're like Paul, falsely accused for our beliefs because we're Christians in a post-Christian society, that isn't what I want you to think about. I want you to listen and look and go, you know what? Maybe I'm more like the crowd than I think I ought to be. We as a society want to vilify people. We want to know about the spilled tea. We want to know about the gossip, the accusations, and we're quick to assume that they're true. 
There's a lot of evil people in, I don't know, Hollywood and Washington, D.C., but there are also sinful, evil people in and outside of the church. That's the crazy part. And this is not political or even an entertainment issue. This is a human issue. And as we studied on Wednesday night, and as Ruth pointed out in the sermon last week, our sin nature doesn't just manifest itself in the do's and don'ts of our lifestyle. It's that our identity is rooted in anything but Jesus Christ and his finished work. Moses, when he had been invited to go up to Mount Sinai in Exodus to speak with God, Moses and God discuss what we call the Ten Commandments. And the one thing I've always appreciated about what we want to make into a list is the order of the list really mattered to the Hebrews. So here's what God tells Moses as the Ten Commandments begin. It says in Exodus 20, verses 2 and 3, God says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt and out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. That's the first one. That's the first commandment. And this is truly something that I think we as a community need to be told and reminded of often. Make God central to everything that you do. And even though you will have to fight against distraction in your daily lives, satisfaction is possible in your relationship with God when he is central as you build your relationship with him daily. So Festus, attempting to have something to tell Caesar regarding Paul and the accusations made against him, is going to get to hear directly from Paul to King Agrippa exactly what Paul believes happened. Verse 1 of chapter 26. Then Agrippa said to Paul, you have permission to speak for yourself. So Paul motioned with his hand and began his defense. King Agrippa, I consider myself fortunate to stand before you and today as I make my defense against all the accusations of the Jews and especially so because you are well acquainted with all the Jewish customs and controversies, therefore I beg you to listen to me patiently. Paul's long-winded, right? And Paul doesn't do as much buttering up as maybe Tertullus, the, the lawyer of the Jews that we heard the other week speaking to Felix did. But nonetheless, Paul was excited to testify to what he had experienced to someone who seemed interested in what the way, the Christian movement, was all about. So here's what it says. Verse 4. The Jewish people all know the way I have lived ever since I was a child, from the beginning of my life in my own country and also in Jerusalem. They have known me for a long time and can testify, if they are willing, that I conform to the strictest sect of our religion living as a Pharisee. Paul begins with this defense of who he was. The Jewish people knew who Paul was. He was, as is written, a Pharisee of Pharisees. He had conformed to the strictest sect of the Hebrew religion, which was as a Pharisee who would take all of the vows, all of the laws, memorization of the Hebrew scriptures seriously, and it was a regular part of his life. Verse 6, And now it is because of my hope and what God has promised our ancestors that I am on trial today. This is the promise our 12 tribes are hoping to see fulfilled as they earnestly serve God day and night. King Agrippa, Paul says, it is because of this hope that these Jews are accusing me. Why should any of you consider it incredible that God raises the dead? Now, Paul is comparing his faith not as different 
than what the Jews believed, but as a continuation and fulfillment, because here's the point, Jesus is the fulfillment of the Hebrew faith. And I don't think the irony is lost on Paul, that Israel's hope was that God would save his people and raise the dead, and that Paul is being put on trial because he believes that God saves his people and raises the dead, but he saves his people through Jesus, and first he raises Jesus from the dead. Verse 9. I too was convinced that I ought to do all that was possible to oppose the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And that is just what I did in Jerusalem. On the authority of the chief priests, I put many of the Lord's people in prison. And when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. Many a time, I went from one synagogue to another to have them punished and tried to force them to blaspheme. I was so obsessed with persecuting them that I even hunted them down in foreign cities. I'm pretty sure Paul could understand where his Jewish opponents were coming from. He was personally involved in doing essentially the same thing that they were attempting to do to him. But with even more authority and with even more effectiveness, Paul was involved in many imprisonments and even murdering of Christians for their belief that Jesus was the fulfillment of the Hebrew beliefs. And here is Paul. Also now, after his transformation from detractor to proclaimer, he too is being falsely accused of blaspheming because, spoiler, what Paul believed about Jesus was 100% accurate. But when Paul, when, when Paul had to go through this, he was like kind of what society is like today. When people hate other people's messages, they will find ways to detract from what is true and make excuses and accusations that have nothing to do with the facts to make others also believe them. And Paul, while I'm sure he was regretful for his actions in the past, knew that the proclamation of the gospel to kings and Gentiles and everyone else was far more important than his personal well-being or vindication before any human court. And so begins Paul going from who he was to what happened that changed his entire outlook on his life and on eternity. And here we go, verse 12. On one of these journeys, Paul says, I was going to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. About noon, King Agrippa, as I was on the road, I saw a light from heaven brighter than the sun blazing around me and my companions. So Paul's explaining the circumstances of how and when and where he had his interaction with the risen Jesus. Verse 14, we all fell to the ground. I heard a voice saying to me in Aramaic, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. Then I asked, who are you, Lord? I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, the Lord replied. Now, Paul hears from Jesus in Aramaic, a Hebrew dialect that Jesus spoke and Paul understood. And Jesus asked Paul, who was going by his Hebrew name, Saul, why he was persecuting him. And Paul adds what Luke does not describe in the other explanations of this moment, that Jesus says, why is it that you're kicking against the goads? A goad was a sharp object that was uh, basically on the end of a chariot. So when uh, 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 horse was not keeping up, it would, it would run into the horse to get it to go faster. And Jesus was implying, why, Paul, do you kick against the goats? Why do you kick against the, the movement of the Holy Spirit who is drawing you? And Paul asks, who are you, Lord? And Jesus replies, Jesus, whom 
you are persecuting. This is interesting to me. It's one thing that's always stuck out to me when I read this in Acts 9 and here, that when Jesus says this, technically Paul is persecuting practically Jesus's church, who was his bride, and Jesus took that personally. But ultimately, God's church, his people, are grafted into Jesus. You mess with Jesus, you mess with this church. You mess with this church, you mess with Jesus. And I, I like, you know, having Jesus to protect me. I don't know about the church as much. And that is the beautiful message of the gospel. When we believe, we are his. Jesus took on our punishment. Jesus gifted us his perfect record of obedience. And when God looks at us, church, and all of our failures and all the things that we've done wrong, and all of our inability to earn anything, the Father instead looks at us and he sees his Son who is perfect on our behalf. So Paul will then explain the commission in particular that Jesus gave Paul directly, verse 16, now get up, stand on your feet. I have appeared to you to appoint you as a servant and as a witness of what you have seen and will see of me. I will rescue you from your own people and from the Gentiles. I am sending you to them to open their eyes and turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Paul is told directly to change direction. From all of the persecution and conflict against the Christian church, Jesus now says, you're going to join me as a servant and as a witness, and you are going to proclaim me to the nations, and I will protect you from your own people, the Jews and the Gentiles. And Jesus is sending Paul to them. Other passages make us assume he meant the Gentiles in particular and to be used by God to open their eyes out of the darkness and into the light from the power of Satan, darkness, to the power of God, light, so that they may receive forgiveness of their sins and their place among those who are set apart by faith in Jesus. This is such a simple and yet profound example of what Paul and we do when we proclaim the gospel of grace. God speaks through us so that some of our hearers can be taken out of darkness and into the light of knowing and being known by God. This is the consistent message from Jesus and all of the apostles' writings. In fact, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, Peter, the, uh, not the disciple whom Jesus loved, I'm Pretty sure he's fond of him, but that's not his title. Peter writes this, but you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his wonderful light. This is us, church. Who, any of us who have truly bowed a knee and trusted Jesus as their king, we are his people. And we, like Paul, have been given the opportunity to proclaim, or may I just say it, to testify about this God who draws us out of darkness and into his wonderful light. Verse 19. So then, King Agrippa, Paul says, I was not disobedient to the vision from heaven, 
First to those in Damascus, then to those in Jerusalem, and all of Judea, and then to Gentiles. I preach that they should repent and turn to God and demonstrate. I like demonstrate better than prove, the way we read it originally. And I'll explain why in a second. To demonstrate their repentance by their deeds. That is why some Jews seized me in the temple courts and tried to kill me. Proving makes us think that we have to prove it to God. God knows. Proving makes us think that we have to prove it to other people. Other people understanding of us does not give us heaven. Paul states that he did not ignore or disobey the vision from heaven of the resurrected Jesus, that he proclaimed the gospel to those in Damascus, then Jerusalem, then Judea, then to the Gentiles. And what did he preach? That they should repent, that they should change direction, change their minds about who God is to turn to God, which is exactly what repentance is, a turning to God. Each of us in some way are not following Jesus. Each of us in some way are not following what God would have us do. And so we have daily an opportunity to repent and turn to God, which is is this idea of demonstrating what our repentance really looks like. By what? By what we do. I love this sentence because our deeds are not the root of of our salvation. Let me say that again. Our deeds are not the root of our salvation. What we do does not save us. Our deeds, when properly motivated, are the fruit of our salvation. And Paul is pointing this out. Our repentance is demonstrated by our deeds. Let me say it another way. Talk is cheap, as James, the half-brother of Jesus, implies in his letter named after him. And when we truly have been convicted... And we see the light, not just these lights that are on, but we see the light of the gospel. If our minds have been changed, our actions follow. And the one who has repented and turned to God does not look unaffected by this change of belief. But our repentance should ultimately come with rejoicing. Our repentance should not be, oh Lord, I'm so sorry. I just, I just have to repent because otherwise you're going to smite me. That's stupid Thor movies, all right? That's not the gospel. Repentance should come with rejoicing. The fact that we can come to God no matter what we've done, we can turn to him even though we make mistakes and are sinful. And I love how a smarter Tim than me says it. Tim Keller, he says, rejoicing and repentance must go together. Repentance without rejoicing will lead to despair. Rejoicing without repentance is shallow and will only provide passing inspiration instead of deep change. And this message of turning to God was offending some of the Jews who seized him at the temple and attempted to kill him. Verse 22, but God, Paul says, has helped me to this very day. So I stand here and I testify to small and great alike. I am saying nothing beyond what the prophets and Moses said would happen that the Messiah would suffer as the first to rise from the dead would bring the message of light to his own people and to the Gentiles. Paul again makes the case that what he is saying is not new or some fabricated story, but the fulfillment of what Moses, the prophets, the Hebrew scriptures, and the Old Testament all said would happen. And Paul has been proclaiming this to any and everyone who would listen. And what did the Old Testament say about the Messiah? Well, if you like to write down some references, I'm going to give you a moment to do that, but not really because I'm going to be pretty fast. 
There are several things that the Jewish people who anticipated the Messiah expected the Messiah to be based on the Old Testament prophecies. The Messiah would be a Hebrew man, Isaiah 9, 6. The Messiah would be born in Bethlehem, Micah 5, 2. He'd be born of a virgin, Isaiah 7, 14. A prophet akin to Moses, Deuteronomy 18, 18. A priest in the order of Melchizedek, Psalm 110, 4. A king, Isaiah 11, 1 through 4. And in the bloodline of David, Matthew 22 through 42. Look it up who suffered before entering into his glory, Isaiah 53. And Jesus met all of these messianic requirements. And not only that, but the the prophet Isaiah in his letter, speaking of the coming of the Messiah, who would be a suffering servant in in chapter 53. We also read this, we studied this when we were in Acts chapter 8, when the Ethiopian eunuch was reading in the chariot in Acts 8, when Philip the evangelist was led by the Holy Spirit to speak to him and see him come to Christ, here is what the Ethiopian was reading, written well over 700 years before. And I'm going to start in Acts and I'm going to go to Isaiah. Here's what it says, Acts 8, 32, quoting Isaiah 53. This is the passage of scripture the eunuch was reading. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter and as a lamb before a shearer is silent, so he did not open his mouth. Skip to Isaiah 53, 8 through 9. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. Yet who in his generation protested? 700 years before Jesus. For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people, he was punished. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in death. Though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Verse 10. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he will see his offspring and prolong his days. How does that happen if you're dead? Oh, wait, I read ahead. And the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many and he will bear their iniquities. Isaiah the prophet being led by the Holy Spirit did not guess. This wasn't a hopeful Hail Mary, pun intended. This was Isaiah speaking, God speaking through him to the future of those who would hear this. The prophecy would be fulfilled through Jesus going to the cross and having his days prolonged, being resurrected. And this is what the Jews were expecting but this mob refused to believe that it was Jesus fulfilling any of it. After speaking about how the Jews' own teaching spoke of what the Messiah would endure and how the truth of this would bring light to many, including the the Gentiles, Festus, the Gentile, chimes in. Verse 24, at this point, Festus interrupted Paul's defense. You are out of your mind, Paul, he shouted. Your great learning is driving you insane. And Paul responds, bless you. No, he didn't. Paul responds, I am not insane, most excellent Festus. What I am saying is true and reasonable. Paul is preaching the resurrection 
And it seemed like crazy talk from crazy town to Gentile Festus. The death and resurrection of Jesus, according to Paul in the letter written to the Corinthians, was a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. But what Paul is saying is very reasonable to one who has believed what the Hebrew scriptures have claimed because they said there would come a Messiah who would do what Jesus did. Paul goes on, the king is familiar with these things and I can speak freely to him. I am convinced that none of this has escaped his notice because it was not done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? And before he even let him answer, shh, I know you do. Paul states that none of this was done in secret. It is well known what the prophets were quoted as saying and what Jesus came and did in Jerusalem. And Paul knew that Agrippa actually was aware and believed the prophets. Verse 28, then Agrippa said to Paul, do you think that in such a short time you can persuade me to be a Christian? Oh man, the, the, oh, he's so prideful in this. Verse 29, Paul says, short time or long, I pray to God that not, not only you, but all who are listening to me today may become what I am except for these chains. Agrippa's questioning Paul's endgame here. It all, he almost sounds amused by what he thinks is Paul attempting to convert him to Christianity with just one speech. And Paul's retort is awesome. He says, in a short time or a long time, I hope that you and everyone else who hears the gospel of grace personified in the person of Jesus would become like me. Not an apostle, just a follower of Jesus, lest these chains that bind him currently. Verse 30, the king rose and with him the governor and Bernice and those sitting with them. After they left the room, they began to say to one another, this man is not doing anything that deserves death or imprisonment. So those in political power, they were a bit perplexed because one, nothing that Paul had done or was even accused of doing was in their view of the Roman law warranting death, let alone imprisonment. Verse 32, Agrippa said to Festus, this man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. While there were plots against Paul and God used the protection of the Roman army to keep Paul from being killed by the Jewish mob, these Roman officials, I believe, were especially surprised by the fact that Paul did not have to be imprisoned, but actually chose to so that he could be brought before Caesar in Rome. Now, this is hearkening back to what Paul heard Jesus say to him directly in Acts 23 while he was originally imprisoned. We know this verse. Ruth has quoted it last week. She she also taught on this verse a few months ago. Verse 11, the following night, the Lord stood near Paul and said, take courage. As you have testified about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. I trust someone who's resurrected from the dead. Anyone else? This was not a hopeful thing. This was not Paul thinking, oh, well, I have to do all I can in my own strength to achieve this. This was going to happen in spite of Paul, in spite of the Roman Empire, in spite of the Jewish opponents. And I hope that when we read the promises of God, in the word of God, we understand that the will of God will come to fruition. And everything political and religious is attempting to stop Paul and his message. But God, in his power, 
and his grace is continuing to do exactly what Jesus said would happen. As Jesus said earlier in the book of Acts to Ananias in Acts chapter 9, when Ananias starts to argue with the vision of the resurrected Lord, I just think that's amazing. You resurrected, you've now come to me in a vision, and now I'm going to argue with you. Where Jesus told Ananias to go and lay hands on Paul and pray for him. Right after Paul had come in contact with the risen Jesus, here's what it says, Acts 9 verse 15, but the Lord said to Ananias, go, this man... Saul, who became Paul, is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. So I, I'm just going to get practical. Worship uh, uh, Beatles, come on up. Come on. I'm going to get practical because we've walked through this passage. We're kind of like, well, we've already heard the, the, the Paul coming to Jesus. We've, we've heard about the come to Jesus moment with Paul. Now he's just testifying it. Oh, yeah, Jesus talks about not kicking the goads. Okay, that's new. But how does this stand out to us? Well, has the Lord spoken to you in his word? Has the Lord spoken to you in your life through his word? And whatever that thing that seems to come up seems to be like this theme in your life and it's coming up over and over. So here's my question. What are you not believing that God has told you that maybe you once did? Because God's will will be done. God's will will be done. So do you believe that? Do you believe him? Do you believe his word? I know for some of you, you do, you believe him. You're like, man, I'm going through it right now. Life is hard, but I, I hold on to the promises of God. And I trust that some of us don't believe this. Maybe we just don't believe it yet. But my ask of you is that you continue to engage. You continue to ask questions. You continue to wrestle with who God is because someday you will see how faithful God is and the beauty of the cross and the beauty of the resurrection and the beauty of God's grace will just be the only thing that you really want. But speaking to those of us who have been doing this a while, I think we start to have our hearts hardened to the truth because we're not believing God. We're not allowing what God has said to us to really be something that is true in our lives day in and day out. We think we're going through something and we go, Lord, I don't deserve this. I've been going to church. I give money. I do this and that and da-da-da. Here's the thing. I love you. Let me just tell you, you deserve death. But God is good, and he gives you his son's perfect record. So when you look at the cross, don't look at the crosses like, yay, Jesus. Look at the crosses. Jesus saved you from that. And you know how I know this? Because I trust someone who resurrected from the dead. Amen? Most popular verse in the Bible. Throw it at me. You guys know it, John 3, 16, written by the disciple whom Jesus loves. John says, I believe John's the one who says it, kind of takes it from some of what Jesus says. Some of our translations make it red letter, some of it make it black. I don't know. Jesus probably said something, but the Holy Spirit said it. So let's go with that. It says, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that anyone who would believe in him would not perish but have eternal life. Do you believe that, church? Because if you do, caring for others and loving others and being extensions of grace to others 
is our application if you already believe it. And if you're yet to believe it, church, repent. Change direction. Turn to God and trust God at his word. And here's what I can promise you. If you bend a knee to your Lord, your life will never be the same. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for a story that in some ways is, okay, God, again, really? But Paul went through this over and over and he trusted you at his word and he believed you because he believes in someone who resurrected from the dead and he saw you, Lord, and he spoke with you and he believed you when you said you will go to Rome and testify about me. God, you've told us to go and make disciples. You've told us to be witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And originally you told your disciples, and I believe I'm a disciple, and I believe there are many disciples of Jesus in this room. So may we not take your commands lightly. May we trust you at your word. Because God, you reign, you live, you rule. And because of that, we can be made into new creations and be your ambassadors. We thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.